Over to you, Peter. Um, I'm going to try and outline my project, this idea of parotheology, and I want to do it by contrasting it with the work of Blaise Pascal. So I'm going to have three parts to this. This is all in the article. Uh, the first, I want to kind of outline what Pascal is doing in his book Pensee, which is a collection of fragments. Uh, you may know he wrote these fragments down and he died before he could put it into a book. Uh, and so there's a little bit of deciphering needs to happen in order to try to figure out exactly what he was doing. So I'm going to try to offer what I think is a good way of thinking about his work. Then I'm going to talk about the Lacanian unconscious. So we're going to look a little bit about what is the unconscious. And then I'm going to connect that with uh, this work of a church of a contradiction, uh, which is going to be contrasted with what Pascal is doing. So to start with, I want to use uh, a distinction Pascal uses between the order of the heart, the order of the mind, uh, and the order of the body. So the order of the body comes first. It's the body, then it's the mind, and then it's the heart. And he compares these like a line and a square and a cube. So the order of the body is the line, the order of the mind is a square, the order of the heart is a cube. I'm going to look at the first two in more depth. I'm going to do the third one a little bit quicker. And this is probably, if you ever read Ponce, I mean, Pascal was one of the greatest minds of his generation. He was a contemporary of Descartes. Uh, he was as good a scientist and inventor and mathematician as Descartes. Um, he was a brilliant intellect, and he was obsessed with writing this book of apologetics that was going to kind of convince people to embrace a life of faith, and this is what Ponce was about. And so we'll start with the order of the body. Basically what Pascal says is that the human condition, the reality of the human condition is misery, right? Um, now, each of these points that I'm going to outline are all dialectically connected. So uh, you're going to see how they're connected in a second, because actually the human condition isn't one of misery um, if we didn't have the hope for something else. Like a dog has the same kind of life as we do, finite and it loses things or whatever, but it's not walking around being miserable. So we have to figure out what is it about the human condition that makes it miserable for Pascal. Um, and so in each of these orders, he has the reality which is misery in the order of the body, the reality, there is the hope, and then there is the symptom, and then there is the archetypal hero of each order. So the reality of the order of the body, which is the order of the material, the order of pleasure, holidays, money, food, anything like that, anything that gives us pleasure, that's the order of the body. And he says, Reality is we're miserable because we're finite, because even when you get something that's great, it doesn't last very long, um, so you've got anxiety about losing it. There's something miserable about the human condition because we have this hope for joy. There is something for Pascal in us that wants to have a, a wholeness and a completeness and have some sort of lasting pleasure. We have this sense within us. And so we live between misery and the hope for joy. And the symptom, a symptom for Freud is a compromise formation. So a symptom is, for example, if someone's biting their teeth, uh, they might be going for a job or talking to their boss. They're biting their teeth as a symptom. Uh, in, in other words, they want to maybe use their claws 
you know, hurt their boss. But if they do that, they'll get fired. So the compromise formation is they're biting their teeth uh, or biting their nails. Or if you clench your jaw, you know, the compromise formation might be you want to shout at somebody, but you're scared if you shout at them, they might leave you. And so you have this weird symptom at night that you're just clenching your jaw all the time because it's a compromise of speaking and not speaking. So the compromise formation at the order of the body is, uh, he calls it divertisement. And divertisement for Pascal is where we try to avoid the misery of existence by getting caught up in things uh, like music and money and holidays, whatever it is, we try to avoid the human condition by just kind of like enjoying life. And his paradynamic example is the hunt. Whenever you hunt for something, you're thinking that, you know, you're chasing this fox. And as long as you're chasing the fox, you can kind of have this fantasy that if you catch the fox, it's going to be wonderful, right? And as long as you're chasing, it's brilliant. And then when you catch the fox, it's not that great. But then you go on to something else. So Wiley Coyote is the perfect example of the Pascalian divertisement, where Wiley Coyote has found a way to eternally chase the roadrunner and never catch the roadrunner. Because if he was ever to catch the roadrunner, he would be devastated, right? Because it wouldn't really match up. And so you have to think that Wiley Coyote uses faulty equipment precisely because he knows it's faulty, right? He, why does he keep using Acme products whenever he knows they're so bad? But maybe because unconsciously he doesn't want them to work so that he can perpetuate the desire. So in Family Guy, there's a cutaway scene where actually Wiley Coyote catches uh, the roadrunner and he's sitting down eating it with his friend and is saying, oh, this tastes really good. You know, after you've really worked for your food, oh, it's, you know, tastes really good. And then his friend says, what are you going to do now? And Wiley Coyote thinks and goes, um, I never really thought about it. And then it cuts to him sitting watching daytime TV and getting drunk and then working in this crappy job. And then he's about to kill himself with one of his catapults. And it ends with him finding religion and talking to his mates about Jesus, right? It was a very Pascalian kind of idea. Um, so that's divertisement. Divertisement, and the rich are better at this. So the archetypal hero of the order of the body is the celebrity, right? The celebrity is able to distract themselves in so many ways because they have lots of money. But ultimately, Pascal says it doesn't work. It's a substitute enjoyment, just like dreaming about drinking water gives you some substitute enjoyment if you're really thirsty, but it doesn't ultimately satisfy. Right, so that's, that's Pascal's order of the body in a nutshell. And that's the best bit of Ponce. He writes so beautifully about the human condition. It's an incredible piece of work. Uh, and the reason why he does this is because he wants to get the reader right, to want religion to be true. Right? That's, his, that's his purpose at this point of the book. He wants the reader not to believe that faith is true or Christianity is true, but to want it to be true that there's a God out there that will actually give you the joy that the latest iPhone won't give you, the latest this, the latest that. Right? That's what he's doing. Then we move on to the order of the mind. Now, in the order of the mind, the reality is uncertainty. We live in radical unknowing. Even when we look at stuff that we think we understand, like gravity or something like that, when, the more you look at it, the more you realize what you do not know. The hope of the order of the mind is certainty, that we want to know how things work. We want certainty. And the compromise formation is probability. 
pretty much. And, and, and Pascal was one of the inventors of probability theory and game theory, right? So in other words, as human beings, we have to act in terms of probability, not knowing for certain what we should do. And that has anxieties connected to it. That creates all sorts of existential problems. And at this level, Pascal wants to say that we live in what we can call epistemological unknowing, which is there is something out there, but we can never know what it is. And he writes beautifully about the world that you can see through the telescope and the world that you can see through the microscope. And he says, we are between two vast worlds. And so we are this thing in the middle of, of a universe that is tiny and a universe that is vast. And at this level, what Pascal wants to get the reader to do is to consider that God and faith is possible. So in other words, he wants to say theism can't be proved, but neither can atheism, right? We can, neither of them can be proved, but... And I won't get into how he does this, it's not the most successful part of the book, but he tries to show that, you know, faith in the life of Christianity is at least reasonable. Just goes, that's all he wants to do, he goes, it's reasonable. So if the reader has gone this far, the reader is going, I would like it to be true, and it might be true. And then this is where Pascal famously comes in and says, right, if that's worked, then what you should do if you're reasonable is you should try to be receptive to faith. That's the reasonable position. You, you'd like it to be true. It might be true. Be receptive. And how are you receptive? Well, for Pascal, it's look at the saints, and that's the archetype of the, the order of the heart. The order of the heart supposedly gives you a certainty that the order of the mind can't give you, and an, a level of joy that the order of the body can't give you. And he said, when you look at a saint, they have a certain certainty that's not an intellectual certainty, and they have a certain joy which is not like a material joy. Look at what they do and do what they do. Do they fast? Do they pray? Do they read certain things? And that's the wager, right? So that's Pascal's kind of approach. And he thinks, hey, maybe you're lucky and God will show up. Maybe you won't, you know, it doesn't matter, but be receptive, almost like the, there's radio waves out there and you have to put up a, a line to kind of find it. Okay, so that's, that's Pascal, and God is the name for that which fills the lack, the God-shaped abyss. Now, I want to contrast that, because I, I think that's one of the best descriptions of religion, as in that's what religions are trying to do, whether it's capitalism, give you the thing that will make you whole and complete, whether it's New Age stuff, there's unity and oneness, whether it's Eastern religions or Western religions, there is this sense of something, something we've lost, and that's in Pascal, we've lost something, and we would like to get it back, right? So there's a, there's a fall, we're living in the shit, and then hopefully we will get back what we lost, right? That's a kind of basic religious system, and say in sacred and secular terms. Now, let's then look at the unconscious for a second, um, because this coheres with a certain reading of Freud, right? Not a good reading of Freud, but there's a reading of Freud that the infant has a type of primordial unity with the mother, right? So you can't really say there's a mother and an infant. They're kind of a sense of there's a oneness, right? And very gradually and very slowly, the infant and the mother separate, 
right? This is a separation that happens at a certain point. Um, and the name for if the separation doesn't happen is, uh, you know, you become Irish. We say it's like you're, you're so close to your mother, right? Psychosis, really, right? Um, that's why they say Jesus was Irish, by the way, because he lived with his mum until he was 30, and she thought he was God. And so the, the, the separation happens, and that means that we are marked by a sense of something we've lost, right? And then in this reading of therapy, everything we do is a substitute for the mother, right? So everything, every other thing that we consume is a kind of substitute that wants to relive what was lost in that pre-eatable oneness, right? So in terms of philosophical language, you can say there is an other to the other. And what that means is there's all of these things, other things that are out there that we're consuming, but the true other of the other is the mother, right? So mother is the name of God on every child's lips, right? So that's very similar to Pascal in a way, but it's not God is the oneness, but it's like that you'll get eschatologically in the future. The oneness is the mother who lay in the past that you will never get back, Right? This is called the incest taboo in anthropology. Right? The incest taboo is, is the idea, and this is why it's the basis of civilization. Right? The incest taboo is basically saying you cannot stay at your mother's breast forever. You cannot stay, you have to separate. Right? And this is the Oedipus complex in Freudian language, but it's that sense of separation in order to get into substitute enjoyments. And as I say, substitute enjoyments are enjoyments that aren't the mother's breast, right? but are something else. Um, we are marked forever by that sense of loss. And so from that Freudian perspective, religion can never give you the thing, right? The Pascalian idea is impossible because, say, we've lost the mother. However, that's not quite what Freud was saying. Freud was saying something more subtle and more interesting, which is, and Lacan brings this out, which is that there is no primal relationship to the mother that you are then separated from. There is a separation, and once you're separated, you're marked with a fantasy that you had some primal unity, right? There was no primal unity because there was no you. You are the result of the separation. You are the result of the pulling apart. That's where there's an I and a thou, a me and a you. That's where the subject is formed. So this is, sounds really weird because the incest taboo does not prohibit anything. What the incest taboo prohibits is already impossible, right? So the, the idea in psychoanalysis is the incest taboo that says you cannot stay with your mother, you cannot stay with the other of the other, the one that will satisfy you. Actually, it's impossible to do that anyway. You can't. You can't have that unity, that oneness, and stay in the, the womb forever, right? So then you ask, well, if it's impossible, why is it prohibited? Why prohibit something that's already impossible? And oh, I'm going to look at this in three different ways. So this is the most complicated one. I'm going to give two more easy examples of this, right? But um, this is the difference between neurosis and other psychic structures like perversion, autism, psychosis, right? The neurotic is the one who experiences the incest taboo, right? They experience the separation and they are marked forever by this sense that there's something that will satisfy them. So the neurotic is riven with this sense of, am I doing the right job? Am I with the right partner? Am I this or am I that? There's always a sense of something that is, is not there. Whereas a perverse subject, 
Uh, see, well, here's the thing, the incest taboo is where all of the enjoyment of life is, right? So for the neurotic, you have this separation and you think, if only I could get back to some wonderful oneness and wholeness, everything would be great. But that actually would be the, the, the end of desire. That would, be, that would stop everything up. That would be like a living death. What we really enjoy is the struggle itself. We don't know that, but actually what makes life interesting is, is precisely not getting the thing. There's, so sabotage is kind of like not consciously where we get our enjoyment, but it's unconsciously where we get our enjoyment. So for an hysteric, they keep their desire alive through jealousy often, right? The hysteric is someone who can only desire because they're jealous. They don't je they're not jealous because they love, they love because they're jealous. And an obsessive is someone who can only desire something that's impossible, right? So they're the ones who always desire something that is unattainable, right? And the unattainable dimension, while they think, if only I could break through the, the impossible prohibition and get the person who I can't have, then everything will be wonderful. They don't realize that it's the obstacle itself that generates the desire. And if you break through the obstacle, it'll end. That's why so many affairs fall apart. As soon as you take the obstacle of the other person, the couple away, and the two people can be together, their desire kind of dissipates very, very quickly. They're going like, fuck, I don't want to go out with them. They're a nightmare, you know? It was their desire, the object cause of desire was the person who looked as if they were the problem. I could be with you if only I didn't have my partner, right? That's, that's, the, that's the obstacle. But as soon as you take the obstacle away, you're like, oh my goodness, do I really want to be with you, right? So that's, that's the neurotic kind of problem. Obviously, that, and what the neurotic has to do is realize that the enjoyment is actually in the antagonism, right? They have to directly enjoy their enjoyment, enjoy the jealousy, enjoy the impossibility, find a way to integrate it into their psychic life. For a perverse structure, for example, they already know that the obstacle um, is where all the pleasure is. So there's a whole pile of problems that arise as a result of that, right? So weirdly, for a neurotic, there, the incest taboo separates you from something that you never could have anyway, which is oneness and wholeness, but it leaves you with this fantasy. Um, and that's, that's a way of thinking about the Freudian other of the other, right? The mother, only, the mother as this transcendent God only exists in the separation from a concrete biological mother who's just a normal person like everybody else. But I want to explain it in two different ways very quickly. One is an example from Slavoj Žižek, who brilliantly talks about the unconscious um, uh, in, in this proper dimension, not as something that exists and not as something that does not exist, but as something that um, clings, some nothing that clings to existence. So his example is this. You go and you watch a movie, and the movie's based on a book, and the movie's not great. So you're like, okay, that movie was okay, but there was something missing from it. And so you go back and you read the book that the movie was based on. But then you realize the book's not that great either, right? So there's something missing in the book as well. So the failure of the movie and the failure of the book generate a third text. This third text doesn't exist. This third text only comes into existence because of the failure of the two, uh, the movie and the book. 
That's the unconscious, right? So in, in Jung, there is, a, there is a substantive, and also Melanie Klein, there's a substantive unconscious that's full of things. Then in terms of neurobiology, you have the unconscious is just purely kind of neurological processes that doesn't exist. The Freudian, Lacanian notion of the unconscious is the unconscious is a nothing that is generated because of failures within the contingent historical reality. So here's an example. A guy, a clinical example, this guy is having trouble in his marriage. Um, he goes to an analyst and he talks about this memory he had when he was 15 years old. And he was at the bus stop and there were these girls and they were giggling and looking over at him and you know, laughing and pointing, right? And he felt embarrassed. And he walked away from the bus stop and he walked home. But this stuck with him and he was kind of turned on by it and also embarrassed by it, right? So it was kind of became part of a fantasy structure, part of his kind of fantasy life. And then what he did is he thought about an earlier memory that it connected to. And he remembered when he was young going to his sister's room and his sister and her friends would laugh and they were older and they would kind of joke and they would look at him and kind of like ask questions or whatever. There was a certain sense in which they were getting enjoyment out of something, right? Now, these two, you can see this later thing at 15 connects to this earlier memory because both of them have a similar structure. This is the Freudian das Ding. Very, very important is that there's something in the infant where they encounter an unknowing dimension of the other, right? They encounter something, what does the other want from me? They're extracting enjoyment from me, but I don't know how they're doing it or what it is, right? So that's the das Ding, and that's what we're so interested in is the enjoyment of the other, the mysterious dimension, the black box within the other, right? So this guy, he experiences these girls laughing. He thinks that whether they were laughing at him or not, who knows, but he felt that they were extracting some enjoyment from him. It connects to this other earlier trauma. But that actually doesn't answer the later trauma. It just replays it. All you have in these two situations is something that's missing, which is the desire of the other. So that points to a third. That points to some substantive desire, some substantive thing that I can't quite name, that I'm drawn to and I'm repulsed by, right? That is the das thing. That's kind of the unconscious, that through contingent failure, we fantasize some substantive thing, some substantive desire, and that's what draws us. But it doesn't exist. It, now, but it's the most existing thing. So it is an effect that causes what uh, brought it into existence. So it's really weird that it's you know this is um, this is why this is what makes something traumatic and not just a painful experience. The trauma is that there is a dimension of the other's pleasure and desire in the thing that you cannot quite grasp. Okay. So what does all that mean? Well, that means that there is definitely no other of the other. There is nothing that can fulfill you. That is a virtual reality. That, that idea that you, there's something missing in reality and there's something that completes it. That is a, a creation, a myth. Right. So 
Then we come to parotheology in Church of the Contradiction, right? How does, and I'll finish up and then we can have a couple of questions if you're interested. Um, I want to say that God is not the name of a substantive reality that can fulfill us. God is not the name of mother, some primordial oneness that we have in the past. God is the signifier of the lack itself, right? So we, or we can use this non-religious definition of God. The name God names a fundamental fracture or lack within reality. And what we need to do is to signify that lack, embrace that lack, and enjoy that lack. So what does that look like in terms of the order of the heart, right? The order of the heart means that the human condition is not one of misery. It's one of jouissance. Jouissance means suffering and joy, pleasurable pain, right? The idea is that we are marked by a contingent lack. There's some traumatic lack within us, some death that we have gone through. This, by the way, is the evidence that there is life after death. As an aside, right? The, this is that there is life after death, and we are the evidence of it. Right? To be a subject is to have passed through death. The subject is the result of castration, of, of a fundamental loss. And here's the trick. If you're scared of dying, the good news is you already have died. And the only thing you have to do is learn to symbolize that death. Right? That's the problem. So a lot of primordial fear, primal agony, it's called where you're terrified of a catastrophe that's going to happen in the future, is a terror of a, of a catastrophe that's already happened. Right? So whenever people think they're going to leave me and everything's going to fall apart and I'll never be the same again, and there's this catastrophizing thought, generally that is because the catastrophe's already occurred, it just hasn't been symbolized. And so instead of trying to like you know, desensitize yourself to the catastrophe in the future. What you need to do is somehow symbolize the catastrophe that has already happened to you. The ultimate catastrophe is we are all already dead. And that's actually what Alfie's talking about at the beginning. The what is the universal thing that links us all together? All castrated. We have all passed through the crucible of death. Anyway, so, and that's what, but that part, that's important for the Church of the Contradiction. The Church of the Contradiction is designed through liturgy to help you symbolize the death that you already are. And in embracing and enjoying that death, that is jouissance. Why was jouissance is pleasurable pain? Because everything that's in your life that's tough is also can be the site of the pleasure. I had a friend recently who was going through a difficult time with his partner. Uh, she was always angry with him. She was always putting him in the doghouse kind of thing. He was getting really sick of it. And over the conversation, I, I knew him quite well. I was like, listen, you love to win people over in your work and probably in his fantasy life and in his relational life you love to win people over and your wife loves to be won over right what you are doing in your relationship is you find a way to keep your desire going she puts you into the doghouse because she wants you to win her over win her back and you love that because you love trying to win her over. You're both getting what you want. You're both getting your enjoyment. You're just not enjoying your enjoyment, right? All they had to do is confront their enjoyment. 
That's the trick. That's the difference between self-help and grace. In, in self-help, you have to go from A to B. Da, 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 you have to, and, and self-help is always telling you how to go from A to B. Grace just says, don't go from A to B. Just look at yourself and look at your surplus enjoyment. Look at what you enjoy, but you don't realize you enjoy. You're getting something out of your self-sabotage. Immediately when I said that to him, it changed the relationship. Just, just like that. Just when he confronted his enjoyment directly, there was a, there was a change in that experience itself. So in the order of the heart, parotheology as opposed to Pascal says, we start with this notion of jouissance, which is the idea that there is a lack within us all, a death, and kind of we're marked by that, and that is the source of our suffering and our enjoyment. Impossibility is what generates, makes life really interesting and really difficult. Consciously, we want the Pascalian joy. We want a God who will make everything good. But unconsciously, we don't. Unconsciously, we want to keep something alive, something difficult. That's what unconsciously we want. So we don't want the Pascalian God, because that would be death. We want desire to continue to function. And so we don't have divertisement. We have the symptom called drive. And what is drive? Drive is what we do to perpetually sabotage ourselves to keep our desire alive, right? We're completely different from animals. An animal makes shelter and then is happy. We have shelter and then we want to build an extension. And then we want to, you know, buy another one and make it bigger, right? There's, we're not satisfied. We don't have instincts. We don't eat and go, that's enough. We want more. And that's what drive is. Drive is, in a sense, the derailment of instinct that wants to keep something alive and keep something going. Secondly, order of the mind. What is the paratheological notion of the order of the mind? For Pascal, if you remember, it's epistemological unknowing. There is a sense in which there is something out there that we cannot know. But if you go with this notion of the unconscious, you go from epistemological unknowing to ontological unknowing. Ontological unknowing is the idea that reality itself does not know itself. That re it's not just that we don't know something, but that reality is lacking itself. In other words, mysticism says, I don't know God, but this approach says God does not know God. There is something in the very nature of reality itself that is unknowing. There's a spontaneity within existence itself. And Hegel calls that absolute knowledge. So uh, parotheology wants to try to show that we have jouissance, not misery. Secondly, we have ontological unknowing, not epistemological unknowing. And that brings us to what the Church of the Contradiction is. The Church of the Contradiction is a liturgy that invites people into that experience, into the experience of lack. Communion is a, is a meal around a shared loss, the death of God, right? Communion is a, is a meal around the death of God, a fundamental lack. A community is formed around shared beliefs, shared enemies, shared scapegoats. A communion is based around a shared sense in which we all uh, touch the void and the void touches us. So this, in a nutshell, is what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, Church of the Contradiction, which we have done in practice a few times and we will be doing again. But I want to stop there and see, like, see if there's anybody who wants to ask a couple of questions and anything that we've looked at. Um, anybody want to jump in? So you're talking about like, the primary, right? There's some kind of like anxiety. Yeah. So you're saying that 
anxiety is about a future event potentially going past event. Do you think that, like, given the fact that the economic conditions are so unstable and you have, like, like a degradation of civil society because of the economy and everything like that, um, that people are extremely anxious already and that maybe these sort of more, um, these philosophical approaches could also make, contribute to people becoming more anxious. Do you see what I mean? That like people turn in bad economic conditions to something that's reassuring and reactionary. How do you kind of deal with the fact that maybe people are navigating a world that makes them anxious and that maybe is echoing the primary because it's reconfronting them with the potential sort of psychic death because of like economic conditions? And then people are likely to, to turn to like reactionary and vigilistic thinking. Yeah. Um, like what can pyrotheology do to, to address that? Because this is something that you see again and again in like when capitalism really does the work of making people, people feel precarious, they turn to more soothing things. Yes. So how how do you draw the people from something that's maybe more confronting? And ultimately is it less is the good news that it's less anxiety producing eventually? Yeah, I mean, it's all, yeah, that's all very good. Um, you know, so, like, here's, where's, what's the critique of capitalism, I think, from a psychoanalytic perspective, is, is that, is, capitalism actually gets something very right. Like some, uh, and this is what people like Todd McGowan say and Slavoj Žižek, which is, capitalism gives us sacrifice. It gives us a huge amount of sacrifice. And it, oh, it never gives you the objective satisfaction. It always dangles it, but but continues to perpetuate this thing, and that keeps you. And just like people who are involved in prosperity churches, the reason why they love it is not because it works, it's because it doesn't work, and therefore keeps the fantasy alive. So capitalism is really good at evoking sacrifice, but what it does is it hides it. It, it hides the sacrifice. It kind of says, well, the sacrifice is contingent, work hard enough, and you can retire by the beach. Um, you know, you can kind of fantasize if you win the lottery, you can get over it. So interestingly, capitalism generates this fantasy of the beyond of sacrifice. For me, where capitalism, where it will go is whenever we are able to directly see the enjoyment that capitalism creates, and in seeing that and bringing it to the surface, that's when a different kind of economic system can arise. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. It's just interesting that like, the human tendency when things get really bad is not, it's to double down, you know, is to, to buy further into the capitalist logic of like identity, division, contingent, like the reason for dissatisfaction is contingent, not quite baked into the whole thing. So is there a way that, I mean, I guess maybe there isn't an answer, but like, that this can be, like, what's the, what, is there a, like, a non-promise or promise that can soothe anxiety that means that people don't turn to, like, reality? Yes, oh, well, yes, I'll say something on that now. Yeah. So if, if you talk about three types of God, there's the God of castration, which is like feudalism, for example. The God of castration is the idea, and Freud talks about this, where uh, we are all lacking, but there's one exception, and it's God. God lacks the lack, or the king lacks the lack. And so there's some other that lacks the lack, but we are all in this shit together, right? Now, interestingly, that creates a lot of social solidarity. 
that creates a, a you know you won't get see much autism or ADHD in a society like that you're all got your place you just work you marry that person you die in the same village it's very da 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 and it's a bit shit but you know we say there's one exception but we're orchestrated the God of today is the God of the demand to enjoy the God of pure positivity and that's the God that says none of you have to be castrated and that's the God of Instagram you know where everybody seems to be whole and complete have the thing right so God's not lacking and you don't have to lack either. That creates social fragmentation, creates jealousies, it creates envies, it creates the, all of these anxieties, and then it creates a return to reactionary politics, which is never a pure return to the past, because in reactionary politics, you have to, you have to dress up the conservatism in, in, in hedonism. So a conservative preacher will say, no sex before marriage, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Because that'll give you the best sex. You have the best sex then, right? So it's, it's dread, so it kind of still is the God of the demand to enjoy. But in that, lots of people then return to conservative places because it gives them frames. The answer for me is, is we're orchestrated, including God. That's, that's the move. That's it, is that there is no non-castrated other. And once you realize that non, the castration or antagonism or uh, contradiction is hardwired into everything, Right, and physics is called wave particle duality, and politics is called democracy, and biology it's called evolution, and mathematics it's Gödel's incompleteness theorem. All of these are the non-at-oneness of reality with itself mirrored, and I think that has political consequences. For, that, that can help minimize anxiety. Like I said, it definitely affects the way that people consume and sacrifice, and therefore creates a fair society because of service value, people aren't sacrificing their own service value on top of everybody else. It gives a reason to like disperse it. Yeah. But it's like the material conditions have people in a situation where they find these kinds of insights. Yes. Well, the, the, perfect, the perfect non-capitalist couple, I was thinking about this the other day because I, I had a friend who was trying to buy a car and the, the, the salesperson was putting them off buying the car and I thought it was really interesting because I was thinking at the same time I was thinking the perfect non-capitalist consumer is the person who goes and looks at cars but never buys them right so they go every week and they look at cars but they never buy it why because they know that it's the looking is where the enjoyment and then you pair that with a salesperson who doesn't want to sell you the car so what you have is a couple which is the salesperson who keeps putting you off buying the car and the customer who doesn't want to buy the car both realize that the enjoyment is in the not having. That, I think, is inherently an anti-capitalist position.